The last word on Today FM with Matt Cooper. Now, when I was told that the author Kevin Power was joining us today for the Culture Club, I decided I'd better go and have a look at his new novel, White City, before I got a chance to talk to him. And am I glad that I did so? It is absolutely terrific. One of the best novels that I've come across in many a long year. A very contemporary Dublin novel with a great international story as well, full of absolute great zingers of one-liners as well. Kevin Barr, congratulations on White City. And just for the listeners, you can probably briefly describe it better than I could. So could you tell them what it's about, please? Thank you, Matt. Yeah, I will. Um, it's a kind of uh, black comedy or, or social satire, I suppose. It's about a young man called Ben who's 27. He's grown up in great privilege. He's the son of a wealthy banker who bears no resemblance whatsoever <laughs> to any wealthy bankers that we might know of. Um, when his dad is arrested uh, for misappropriating 600 million euro from his own bank, uh, Ben, the young man in question, is cast out into the world and has to fend for himself. He ends up getting involved in a crooked property deal in the Balkans with an old school friend. And again, he went to a school that bears no resemblance to any we might know of in Irish public life. It's a terrific read. It's great, great fun. And I think anyone who reads it, I'm sure, will absolutely enjoy it. Of course, it's been a while since your last book, which was Bad Day in Black Rock, which became the movie What Richard Did. Uh, So has an awful lot of other work that wasn't published sort of gone into White City? Yeah, and this book kind of came together out of the the ruins of two previous novels. One was an attempt, a kind of much more serious attempt, sober sort of novel to imagine the life uh, of the family of, of a disgraced banker in the kind of aftermath of the of the crash in 2008. And then the other one was, a, again, much more kind of freewheeling, but also much more chaotic novel about a a, a young lad on a, on a kind of business trip to Serbia, where I had I spent a very strange week um, in 2010. So the, these two kind of failed projects did eventually grow together and, and ended up making one one book. I'm glad they did. It's a terrific read. I haven't finished it yet, but I'm really looking forward to getting stuck into it again as early as this evening. Okay, let's go through your Culture Club choices. And Kevin, we ask everybody who comes on the spot to nominate the first single that they ever bought. You're the first person who's nominated two. Sort of one is a child and one is when you really got into music, which I like the approach. Tell us about your two choices and we'll play bits of both of them. (laughs) <laughs> yeah the first the first single i ever remember kind of wanting i think I, I don't think even think i bought it i think i got my mother to buy it for me when i was 11 or 12 was i would do anything for love but i won't do that by meatloaf um and i don't know why i fell in love with that song particularly at the time i suppose everybody did um and i still i mean i'm still a big fan of jim steinman's songwriting and meatloaf singing i was very sorry to hear jim steinman passed away um a week or two ago um yeah that was that was my kind of first encounter with wanting a particular record. Then I got it. Well, hold on. Before we get into your more adult taste, well, let's, yeah. or maybe your more teenage taste, let's hear a little bit of that. I won't do that 
Ah, the melodrama of that. Okay, what's your other choice then, which would have been how many years later, do you reckon, Kevin? Um, I think I looked up when this song came out first recently, and it was 1996, so that was, I was it would have been 15. Um, and it's uh, Heels, Novocaine for the Soul. And this was, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd become very serious, and I'd become very serious about music, and I wanted to be into music that had indie cred. And I think, it, you know, if I'm being completely honest, probably the first single I bought was an Oasis single, but for my indie cred, I'm going to say that it was <laughs> uh, Novocaine for the Soul by the Eels. Let's hear it. Life is hard. And so am I You'd better give me something So I don't die that in ages but it's a great track isn't it it's a great song yeah they were a great band I, I, they, they were they defined my 1990s in many ways so then you became this indie child and then we asked you to nominate your favourite album and band and it wasn't something from the indie sector at all you went back into the dinosaur rock era <laughs> I did yeah I said there's no getting away from it my wife would be the first person to mock me for this um because she refuses to countenance listening to this band but I love them so much Pink Floyd um I know they have you know they have a reputation as absolute dinosaurs and they've made these big operatic concept albums that it's very easy to slag off but I just I can't help but they they they, they are for me great artists and great kind of makers of of kind of powerful works of art in, in the form of concept albums and that's that's lame and I accept that it's lame but I also I just can't help it and what would your favourite album from Pink Floyd be? well it's got to be The Wall I think that's kind of the that's the masterpiece let's hear Comfortably Numb forgotten how much I like that track. I haven't heard that in a long time, Kevin. Well, you're a human being, Matt. We all we all get moved by comfortably dumb, whether we mean to or not. <laughs> Tell us a little bit, though. Have you ever uh, had an encounter with anyone from Pink Floyd? Yes. I, well, sort of. I was at a book festival a few years ago, <clears throat> and we were sort of standing outside in the sun, outside this beautiful country house down in Carlow. 
And my wife sort of elbowed me and said, look over there by the barbecue. And, uh, and I looked and it was David Gilmore from Pink Floyd. And I kind of froze. And I, it never even occurred to me that I could go over and, and talk to him. Um, because it, that music is just too meaningful to me. It's too important. I would have gone over and I would have said something stupid. I would have said, I love you or something equally embarrassing. <laughs> now I think maybe I should have it would make a good story. It would make a slightly better story than this, maybe. But they say, don't meet your heroes. You're going to be disappointed by the experience. Well, exactly. I mean, he was just drinking beer at a barbecue. You know, it wouldn't have been necessarily the kind of anecdote that you want. <laughs> okay. Best gig you were at? The best gig, yeah, this is probably, it doesn't fit in with my previous choices at all, but I went to see Kanye West and Jay-Z do their Watch the Throne tour um, in the O2 in Dublin in 2012. Um, and it was absolutely mind-blowingly good. It was just, it was a kind of perfectly designed, um, you know, musically brilliant, really electrifying experience. Yeah, it, it's, yeah, it really was the most memorable gig I've been to. There wasn't, they didn't, there wasn't a bad song on the set list. Um, they had tremendous charisma on stage. It was great. Let's hear a little bit from the point on the Watch the Throne, Throne tour. I just have to say the sound isn't great, so it is a shortish clip. Brings it back to you, Kevin. Yeah, very much so. That was it. It was. It was an incredible gig. Okay, let's move on to movies. And uh, you've nominated two, which you say one is what you call a legitimate one, and one a slightly embarrassing one. Talk to me about the slightly embarrassing one first. Why would you be embarrassed by it? <laughs> well, this I'll talk about this more in a few minutes. I think when we get to what I loved as a teenager. But yeah, I was, and, and in many ways, remain a huge Star Trek fan. Um, and there's something slightly, still slightly not culturally, you know, kosher about, about being a Star Trek fan, even though there's been a huge effort to, to you know, redeem it with the J.J. Abrams movies and the, the TV shows, the recent TV shows. But yeah, my favorite film, really, if I have to admit uh, to one favorite film, it is Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, which is, you know, it's an overblown space opera. It's cheesy in many ways. I'm aware of all that. But at the same time, Every time I see it, it makes me cry. And every time I see it, I love it more. That's, uh, yeah, it, it is the movie that, that works best for me. Okay, so then you, what you call your legitimate, legitimate one is what? Yeah, my, legit, my kind of, you know, slightly classier choice is The Prestige, which is a Christopher Nolan film that kind of, you know, I don't think is by any means his most popular film. It's about two rival magicians in the 19th century and their obsession with destroying each other. But it, it is also an incredibly complex work of kind of narrative art and it, it does uh, from Hang a on, is it, is it understandable given that Christopher Nolan has sort of disappeared somewhere at present in relation to some of his more recent movies that you can't make head nor tail of the premise or of the story does the prestige is it something that enables you to follow it and get to the conclusion? Yes, I think so. I think it's it's it got the best twists of any of any film I can I can remember. It it's, it surprises you so much the first time you see it, and when you go back and watch it again, as I've done many times, it makes perfect sense. It's kind of beautifully structured and beautifully engineered. Well, we have a clip from it in which David Bowie and Hugh Jackman feature. You are familiar with the phrase, "Man's reach exceeds his grasp," is the lie? 
Man's grasp exceeds his nerve. Society only tolerates one change at a time. First time I tried to change the world, I was hailed as a visionary. Second time, I was asked politely to retire. <laughs> so here I am, enjoying my retirement. Nothing is impossible, Mr. Angier. What you want is simply expensive. If I were to build for you this machine, you would be presenting it merely as illusion? Well, if people actually believe the things I did on stage, they wouldn't clap, they'd scream. I mean, think of sawing a woman in half. Mr. Angier, have you considered the cost of such a machine? Price is not an object. Perhaps not, but have you considered the cost? I'm not sure I follow. Go home. Forget this thing. I can recognize an obsession. No good will come of it. There's a great cast in that as well, isn't there? Beyond just Hugh Jackman and David Bowie, you have Christian Bale, Scarlett Johansson, Michael Caine and others. Yeah, it's it, it, and they're all kind of working at the at the top of their their game as well. Christian Bale plays the other magician who's kind of rival to to Hugh Jackman, and they work really really well, kind of with and against each other. Yeah, it's a really underrated film, I think. I think it may still be available on Netflix. It was certainly on over the Christmas period, and it's still maybe there if people want to check out the Prestige. Before we take our break, Kevin Parr, will you nominate for me a favorite play or musical or theatre show? Yeah, this is this is not really my area of of great expertise, but I went to see Hamilton, um, Lin Manuel Miranda's great American musical, um, in London a couple of years ago, and it is absolutely incredible. It's a really a really extraordinary work. I mean, I'm kind of I'm fascinated by America, American history, and it was kind of you know an ideal an ideal work for me to to see. Yeah, it's uh, absolutely brilliant. You're about, I said at this stage, we're well over a dozen people on the Culture Club have nominated Hamilton as their favourite. Not just the story, but I think it's just the unexpectedness to me, certainly when I saw it, of the way the music and the story is presented as well. Yeah, it's 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 really it's incredibly original. It it brings in all sorts of different musical influences, all sorts of different uh, staging kind of styles and acting styles, and and makes them work in this incredible way. Let's hear a little bit of a winter's ball from Hamilton. How does a bastard orphan? Son of a whore, go on and on, grow into more of a phenomenon. Watch this obnoxious, arrogant, loud mouth bomber be seated at the right hand of the father. Washington hires Hamilton right on sight, but Hamilton still wants to fight, not right. Now Hamilton's skill with the quill is undeniable, but what do we have in common? We're reliable with the ladies. There are so many to the Ladies, looks proximity to power. Ladies, they delighted and distracted him. Martha Washington named her feral tomcat after him. That's true. 1780, oh, winter's ball, and the Skylar sisters are the envy of all. Yo, if you could marry a sister, your rich son, is it a question of if, ver, or which one? Hamilton. A winter's ball. So we might as well move on to your influences in books. Favourite book and author. What have you gone with? But this was almost too hard for me to answer because there are so many. And I almost went with Susan Sontag's uh, great essay collection against interpretation. But I kind of thought for a novelist, I should probably choose a novel. And I've gone with Saul Bellow as, as pretty much my favourite writer, the writer I return to the most. Um, and for me, his best novel is Herzog from 1964. 
what tell us what it's about and why do you love it so much? Um, it's about, it's probably not the kind of subject that, that would get a, a lot of traction nowadays. It's about a middle-aged academic whose wife leaves him for another man and he goes into, spirals into emotional crisis. The first line is the great uh, famous kind of opening sentence, if I am out of my mind, thought Moses Herzog, it's all right with me. Um, and it's it, 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 subject aside, as a, as a novel full of incredible sentences and incredible descriptions that respond to the, the world, the ordinary world. It's just every page has amazing stuff on it. Well, let's hear an extract from the audiobook of Herzog. Professor Herzog had the unconscious frankness of a man deeply preoccupied. And toward the end of the term, there were long pauses in his lectures. He would stop, muttering, excuse me, reaching inside his coat for his pen. The table creaking, he wrote on scraps of paper with a great pressure of eagerness in his hand. He was absorbed, his eyes darkly circled. His white face showed everything. Everything. He was reasoning, arguing. He was suffering. He had thought of a brilliant alternative. He was wide open. He was narrow. His eyes, his mouth made everything silently clear. Longing, bigotry, bitter anger. One could see it all. The class waited three minutes, five minutes, utterly silent. Saul Bellows, Herzog. Now, let's move to television shows. And again, like we did with music earlier, we talk a little bit about what you liked as a kid and what you like as an adult. Go back to the childhood, because you've already sort of teed that up with Star Trek and the movies. Yeah, um, I, I was hugely into all science fiction tv as a kid anything that had spaceships in it that was me happy um so yes yeah, star trek the next generation which is um yeah funnily something i have in, in common with our, our current tarnished which uh always kind of strikes me as slightly odd uh, because i was the only star trek fan i knew um in my village of rathgool when i was growing up the only star trek the next generation fan um and as i've grown up i found out that lots of people were secretly really big fans of Star Trek The Next Generation. And of course, it's become a lot more culturally, you know, uh, acceptable and popular to be a Star Trek fan. But I still feel that there's a, there's a you know, it has a kind of embarrassment to it. Um, yeah, so stuff like The X-Files, Babylon 5, all of these kind of science fiction shows from the 90s, I was an obsessive viewer of all of them. And now, as an adult, what do you watch? Um, yeah, I've kind of moved away, actually, from watching kind of, televised science fiction um i'm i i I like i like kind of the same prestige dramas as as most people i think i thought the first series of true detective was was really distinctive and 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 interesting if kind of weirdly misogynistic in many ways um and i thought mindhunter was really really excellent um but i think my my favorite show the most pleasurable the most enjoyable show that i kind of go back to again and again is uh veep armando Iannucci's show about um a fictional vice president of the united states played by julia louis dreyfus and i think julia louis dreyfus in that in that show gives maybe the greatest comic performance of all time i think she's a phenomenal actor and uh, in that show they use her so well she uses the material she responds to the material so well she's hilarious as it happens though the clip we have focuses on jonah ryan played by timothy simons on the campaign trail and i don't know if i have to give the usual obligatory banned language warning but if it's from veep i'd assume we must (laughs) and you know who else thinks that i don't have the intelligence or the temperament to be president My very own campaign staff. Yeah. They have been working against me, trying to stop me from becoming president. 
Yeah. No, that's right. You can boom. Go ahead. That is my campaign chair, Amy Bruckheimer. She recently had an abortion. That is my chief strategist, Teddy Sykes, and he is an overgrown midget who had to be chemically castrated. And this, and that guy right there, that's Eric something? Bill Erickson. That's Eric Bill Erickson. And I don't exactly know what his title is, but he thinks he's better than me, and he thinks he's better than everybody else in this room. And one more thing. I just found out from my stupid stepfather. Father-in-law. From my stupid stepfather-in-law that math was invented by Muslims. Yeah. And we teach this Islamic math to children. These math teachers are terrorists. Algebra? More like Al Jazeera. Under a Ryan presidency, I will ban this Sharia math from being taught to American children. There will be no more math. No more math. No more math. No more math. Oh, that's absolute genius, isn't it? <laughs> it's such a funny show, and it gets funnier on the rewatch, funnily enough. The first time I watched it, I kind of thought, yeah, it's okay, it's okay. But then you realize how carefully they've crafted the characters and how beautifully believable all of the performances are when you kind of go back to watch it again. I had on my list, though, you're big into Breaking Bad as well. Well, yeah, I mean, it, yeah, again, this was the, the cool show of about a decade ago. So, you know, I'm still kind of carrying the banner for this one. Um, but yeah, I, I, again, I kind of admire it from a, a point of almost a craft point of view, a technical point of view. I, I often tell my kind of creative writing students that they should watch it purely because it's so perfectly plotted that over five years, everything, every thread is tied up, every kind of setup is paid off. Um, and you know, it, it just is incredibly satisfying when they when they spin one of their reversals and and and, and they trick you with a, a beautifully done bit of plotting. Uh, yeah, I, I I think it's something it's something writers can learn a lot from. I hope you're waiting for Better Call Saul series six of the prequel, which is some people would say is even better. I, I'm going to confess that I have never watched Better Call Saul. You what? Yeah, I know. Oh, I know. We you have, have we to. Have two small kids, so my 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 TV watching is pretty limited at the moment. I can I understand that. Pig, so I've been there, but that. believe me, it is absolutely magnificent. And if you loved Breaking Bad, you can only love Better Call Saul. When you get the time, I suggest it. Now, if you don't have much time, how do you do for podcasts? <laughs> well, as I think I said already um yeah I, I i hate podcasts i don't listen to them at all um i i, I find i find that they fall broadly into two kinds i'm going to annoy a lot of people by saying this i'm sure um but to generalize hugely for me podcasts fall into kind of two different types and and in one type you have a kind of fake narrative imposed on disparate events to give you a comforting feeling that the world makes sense and everything adds up um, and this strange fact is connected to this strange fact and isn't that interesting? And then you kind of get to the end and really you haven't learned anything at all. You've just been fooled into thinking you've learned something. And then the other kind of podcast, I'm ranting now. No, um, please do, please do. <laughs> is a kind of four-hour unstructured conversation between people who have opinions about something. And I can't, I, I can't listen to it. I just, I tune out almost immediately, especially if it's on a political subject because it's just like Twitter in in audio form um and i get my kind of uninformed political opinions from twitter thank you very much and i don't need to get them from podcasts too well i suppose the difference is as well at least you're limited in the number of characters in a tweet and you can get it done with quickly but is there perhaps an issue with an awful lot of uh, podcasts that they could do with significant editing 
Very much so. I mean, there's people enthused to me about podcasts and they say it's great. Now it's 72 hours long. Um, but once you get past the 36 hour mark, it really start, It really gets good. And I think, no, I, I will not be doing that. I will not be spending my time waiting for the 36 hour mark of this allegedly groundbreaking podcast. As you were just mentioning, you have two small children. I believe your second child was born very recently. Is that right? Yeah, he turned eight weeks old yesterday. Congratulations on that. Um, that, of course, as you say, if it restricts your ability to watch television, what's it going to do for your reading and more importantly for your writing? <laughs> well, I think after my daughter was born two and a half years ago, I didn't write anything for, I'd say, a full year. Um, I, now I've kind of figured out how to get it done in, in shorter bursts of time. So if I have kind of 15 minutes, half an hour to spare, I run to the laptop and I type and then I go back. Um, yeah, so I've, I've, I, 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 I get it done in between all the other things I have to do, which is, I think, the, the way most people with kids end up doing most of their work. How much of a relief was it to you to get the second book done? Because what is the gap between uh, your first novel, Bad Day in Black Rock, and this new novel, White City? Yeah, it was 13 years between them. Um, and believe me, I felt every minute of those 13 years. Um, yeah, it was it was tough. And I went through um, a kind of a fairly long period of being very depressed and disenchanted and and you know believing that I would never write anything good ever again um and yeah it took me a long time to kind of climb out of that it really what I, it, it took was starting to see writing not as some kind of sacred vocation but as just a job and something that as I've something like what I've just said you can go and do it in 15 minute intervals between li you know while you're living and that, that that takes a lot of the pressure off and it made it easier for me to to write the the second book in the end yeah but that gap did what you learned from that period i mean and even the sort of the personal problems that you might have had with depression and the rest of it did they eventually help you with what you put together for what as i said earlier is an absolutely terrific novel yeah, I mean, they, in in many ways, it, that became one of the subjects of the book. Yeah. And it's, it's a book about a, a man trying to come to terms with the fact that he's, you know, failed or or, or never really, uh, you know, understood the world that he that he lives in and wants to succeed in and, and how he comes to terms with that and learns, you know, how to navigate a complex world and then how to become a kind of become a grown up, essentially. So in a way, I was writing about what was happening to me while it was happening and using the, the novel to try and make sense of it. And that's, yeah, that, that, that kind of made it easier to write because the, the the material was was very personal to me but also I felt it was important to turn it into something that would be entertaining for other people and not just me maundering on so I, I did try to make it as funny as I could. So it's opened up now perhaps your potential for doing more things in the future? Yeah I'm I'm working on another novel I'm at the stage where I I'm working on it and thinking it's awful um, but I have come I've gone through this stage before so I'm, I'm hoping to just kind of press on and, and, and hopefully get through this and start to think it's good again in a, in a week or two but we'll see. Listen thank you very much Kevin Power for being with us here on The Last Word of Today FM. The novel White City is one that I would heartily recommend. It's one of the most enjoyable reads I've come across in quite a long time and I've really enjoyed your picks for the Culture Club. I have to tell you as well though Kevin uh, for those who haven't heard this live on radio this is going out as a podcast as well so hopefully <laughs> that'll fall into a third category of podcast one that you could endorse. Thanks very much for being with us. The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Listen live on air from 4.30 weekdays on Today FM.